while back, we, we surprised a few listeners when we talked to an author about a subject that many would have suspected as being impossible to make interesting. That subject was the periodic table of the elements, and the author in question was science writer Sam Keen. Mr. Keene's work has appeared in many of our favorite venues, including New Scientist, Slate, Mental Floss, The New York Times, and he's been on WNYC's syndicated radio lab, as well as NPR's All Things Considered. Despite the trepidation of some about the periodic table, we had a great time talking about his book, The Disappearing Spoon. To judge by reactions from you, dear listener, you enjoyed that chat, too. So when we were sent a copy of Mr. Keene's latest effort, we were prejudiced in its favor before opening it. The book is The Violinist's Thumb and Other Lost Tales of Love, War, and Genius, as written by our genetic code. It's a tale wound around DNA, the molecule that tells all living cells what to do. Everyone's heard of DNA, but how it works is something that, well, most people are vague on the details of. We hope to clear up a few of those details today as we explore how science unraveled many of the mysteries of the genetic code. It's a colorful tale, as told by Sam Keen anyway, and this correspondent's willing to bet that everyone listening to this segment's going to learn something they did not know. So let's get started by saying welcome back to Radio Parallax, Sam Keen. Hello, thanks for having me. Sam, most people probably know that genes make life forms what they are, and Many realize that genes are coded in DNA and that DNA is coiled up in structures called chromosomes. But, of course, these terms definitely mean different things. Can we kind of do a little, little kind of background to briefly explain those differences? Sure. Uh, yeah, like you said, they are distinct things. Um, DNA is a substance. It's a chemical. It's something that uh, can stick to your fingers. Genes, genes have a physical basis. They're made of DNA. But in some ways, genes are better thought of as more abstract. And in fact, scientists discovered genes long before they knew that DNA had anything to do with heredity. You can work with and talk about genes without having any idea of how information gets passed from generation to generation. How I like to think about it is that genes are like the story of human history or human life, and DNA is more like the language that that story is written in. Chromosomes is a word that throws people a lot, too. Can we just kind of outline what that is? Sure. Chromosomes are discrete bundles of DNA inside you. Uh, They're very long molecules, um, but we're used to seeing them as these sort of like paper doll pairs Uh, inside a cell. They line up at certain points and they divide. One gets pulled one way into one cell, one gets pulled another way into another cell. Uh, But again, basically, it's just a long string of DNA. And chromosomes are really what uh, house genes. They're they're the ways, the physical ways that genes get carried from a parent to a child. Well, I've noticed your books have a lot of uh, interesting biographies woven into them. In the first chapter of this book, you mentioned a couple names key to the discovery of genetics. Most people probably have heard of Gregor Mendel, the once obscure monk who crossed peas to some good end. But the still obscure figure of Johannes Friedrich Meischer kind of struck me. Nobody's heard of him. But what did he discover? Well, he discovered DNA for the first time. Um, Again, this was a substance that people really didn't know what it did. Uh, He was the first one to really look at DNA um, and find out what it was. Uh, He was investigating 
actually uh, bandages of soldiers that got brought over from a local hospital. Uh, an orderly would come by with these, frankly, they were just pus-soaked bandages, and uh, Misher would take them, he would wash them to liberate the white blood cells in the pus, and he would look for the DNA inside them and isolate the DNA. And he discovered this actually when he was pretty young. He was only in his uh, 20s, I believe, when he discovered this. But he didn't get a lot of credit for it because no one knew what this substance did. And they especially didn't think it was something that was carrying information from parent to child. So he actually died... Uh, pretty obscure and uh, kind of lonely. He was really dedicated to his work. He actually uh, missed the beginning of his wedding because he was at the <laughs> lab bench for too long. His friends had to actually drag him away. Um, but for all the work and dedication he put into it, he never quite got the credit that he deserved. And again, he kind of died just obscure. And even today, he's not very well known. Well, I'm glad you, you helped uh, revive his name for, for the public. Um, scientists sometimes divide into opposing camps. This, this is a pretty frequent occurrence. They fight and then sort of discover later on that maybe both sides were right. Early in your yep. book, you talk about one of the more celebrated examples of this, a battle 100 years ago of whether Mendel was right or whether Darwin was right, and some, some pretty brainy people working with fruit flies helped break that deadlock. Can you tell us a bit about some of those, the fly boys, I guess they were called, and, and how they reconciled Darwin and Mendel? This was a time, and it's sort of forgotten today, but uh, right around 1900 or so, there was a lot of conflict between biologists over, as you said, Mendel and Darwin. And a lot of biologists really disliked Darwin's theories. They just didn't think that they made sense. Specifically, uh, Darwin always emphasized that evolution happened very, very slowly, very gradually whereas most biologists thought that evolution happened much more quickly. They were looking for jumps in species, and they all believed in evolution, but they didn't think that Darwin's mechanism, natural selection, made a lot of sense. So they wanted an alternative, and they saw an alternative in Gregor Mendel, and a lot of them were actually happy to let Charles Darwin's name just sort of be lost to history. They really didn't think he was a very good biologist. Uh, it was called the Eclipse of Darwinism. This eventually got resolved largely through the work of some biologists in New York, um, especially a man named Thomas Hunt Morgan and some very brilliant assistants of his. Um, and Morgan was kind of an unlikely savior here because he didn't believe that Darwin or Mendel was right. He thought they were both bunk, actually, <laughs> because Morgan was kind of allergic to the idea of big grand theories in biology, and Mendel and Darwin were kind of the biggest, most grand theories of all, and he just didn't want those kind of speculative theories in biology. So he actually set out to disprove both of them by breeding fruit flies and looking at how fruit flies passed information from one generation to the other. Uh, and of course, he ended up proving that Darwin and Mendel were both right far more uh, spectacularly than he ever could have hoped. And uh, he ended up winning a Nobel Prize for doing the exact opposite of what he set out to do. So it's, it's really a fun story of how 
Um, and, and, and I should say, he deserves credit, too, for being open-minded enough to realize he had been mistaken before. That's one of the good qualities he had. And the innovations he introduced in his fruit fly room are still with scientists today. We still use um, fruit flies in a lot of genetics research. Um, it, things have gotten a little... The circumstances have improved since Morgan's time. He was kind of in this squalid, dirty room with flies around, and he would, you know, just kind of squish them all over the place. It was kind of a mess inside Morgan's lab, which isn't the case today. But, again, he's really the one who got all this work started. Just as an aside, one of my one of my jobs in college was was cleaning out the fruit fly lab, uh, washing all the the bottles and essence down there. That was interesting. But oh. uh, so maybe maybe the filth is still with us today. In a way, it is. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you note that modern genetics has uncovered some really weird facts about our genetic material, and one that has always amazed me and still amazes me after reading the book is just the vast majority of the DNA in our chromosomes is stuff that is not code for genes. It's there. We, we know it must be important, but we're still trying to figure out why we have so much of what's been termed junk DNA. Yeah, uh, if you look at the part of our genome, the part of our uh, DNA that actually produces proteins, the things that make us go, that only is about 2% of our DNA. And the rest of it, might have some sort of uh, function. Uh, some of it we definitely know is regulatory DNA that helps turn genes on or to turn genes off at certain times. But as you said, a lot of it just remains a mystery. We really don't know what it's doing there, whether it's important, whether we could get rid of it and be fine, or whether we need all of that DNA. One of my favorite facts from the book is that actually 8% of our DNA is just old, broken-down virus DNA that got inserted into people long ago by viruses that invaded our body, and we just never cleaned it out, and it's just been sitting there generation after generation. Uh, so by some measure, with 8% for virus and 2% for actually protein-making DNA, where we could consider ourselves four times more virus than human in that way. Yeah, as you know, in the book, Darwin would surely be just surprised to discover that uh, humans have descended not just from apes, but also viruses. Yeah, we, we do have viruses in our past, and every time uh, two people have a child, they end up passing virus DNA on to that child. So in some sense, the viruses uh, did a very, very good job of uh, kind of winning the game of evolution because their genes are getting passed on uh, just as often as our genes. Well, you learn a lot of interesting, like I said at the beginning, a lot of interesting facts in your book, surprising things. I, I despite a degree in biology, was quite stunned to learn from your book that back in, in 2006, a French virologist went into our DNA, a la Jurassic Park, found a virus that had buried itself, and then basically clipped it back out again and, and recreated a virus. I did not know this. It's amazing. Yeah, it, it was a Frenchman, and what he basically did is he looked for stretches of viruses in our DNA uh, that were kind of broken down. They usually had a mutation that um, sort of rendered them impotent. It just broke them, and they didn't work anymore. But when you have 
you know, 10 or 15 different stretches of the same virus DNA. And if each one has a broken down part at a different point, you can kind of piece them back together. It'd be like finding a car uh, where an axle's broken on one or the carburetor's broken on the other, and just taking the spare parts, putting them together to make one working car. And as you said, he actually resurrected this virus in a petri dish, something that humans hadn't been exposed to for I mean, who knows how long, millions of years possibly. He brought it back to life in a petri dish, and it easily infected cells. And no one really knows what this virus would do. The scientists said that it was a pretty benign virus. It wouldn't really do anything to us. Thank goodness. But it's still, yeah, thank <laughs> goodness. But it's, it's still scary to think about. Um, not only that we have this virus DNA inside us, but that, you know, with modern technology, we could possibly bring some of it back. We're speaking with science author Sam Keen about his intriguing book, The Violinist Thumb and Other Lost Tales of Love, War, and Genius, as written by our genetic code. Sam, um, most DNA lies in the cell nucleus, but scientists discovered there were bits of it in other parts of the cell, uh, in, in the powerhouses of our cells, mitochondria. They have their own DNA, a little bit of it. Uh, back in the 60s, a scientist named Lynn Margulis took a look at that and came up with a revolutionary explanation. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, Margulis decided that um, because these little mitochondria, the powerhouses of our cell, uh, because they have their own DNA, she suspected that maybe they were once independent organisms. Uh, the idea was that way back long ago, when only bacteria lived on the planet, um, there was maybe a very large bacteria one day that tried to swallow a smaller one. It tried to engulf and eat it. Or maybe a small bacteria invaded a larger one. But something happened, uh, and the little bug ended up inside the bigger bug. And for some reason, there was kind of a stalemate. They just, uh, either one couldn't eat the other, or the one couldn't attack the larger one. And they ended up just kind of coexisting with each other. It was probably kind of an uneasy coexistence at first. But over time, they began to specialize a little bit. Uh, again, the smaller one began to produce power for the cell. The bigger one could offer uh, safety. It could bring in more nutrients and food. And they ended up dividing the labor between them. It was sort of, uh, sort of like the uh, kind of an Adam Smithish kind of thing, where if you divide the labor, each one gets better at its specific job. And Margulis believed that over time, over a long period of time, this eventually led to what we call the mitochondria today. And it was a really revolutionary theory. She turned out to be right about it. But when she tried to propose this theory, uh, she ran into a lot of opposition for it. Uh, yeah, scientists really actually kind of hated this theory and really gave her a hard time for it. And, you know, that's not uncommon. That happens in science a lot of time, and different people react to it uh, in different ways. Uh, some people kind of shrink, and they never go back and fight it. Margulis was not like that. Margulis was a fighter, 
and she really came out swinging after people. And eventually she proved herself correct, and now uh, it's considered a really fundamental step in evolution um, from in the evolution from simple bacteria to the more complicated bacteria and eventually to multi-celled creatures. It was really, really an important step, and Margulis was the one who figured all that out. Well, Margulis has another idea I'd like to just briefly go out and limb with you on, is that sure. she's believed that uh, genes may leap species to species, and that may have a lot more to do than, with evolution than we'd previously thought. Uh, most people still don't believe that's the case, but as, as we go along, we are finding that genes do tend to go from one species to another. So what do you think the odds are she might be proven right in the long run? It's a bit of a controversial question. It's kind of an old um, dilemma in biology, and it actually goes back to what we were talking about a little bit before, uh, about the eclipse of Darwinism. Again, it was the idea some people, like Darwin, think evolution happened very slowly, other people like to think about evolution happening in leaps. They like to think of jumps. And Margulis was one of the people who believed in jumps. And she believed that uh, species could sometimes exchange DNA. There was more of a free flow of DNA, kind of uh, horizontal instead of just vertical, the way we think about it from parent to child. And she's definitely been proven right in some situations. For instance, the hu in humans even, uh, we got one of the more important genes that makes up the placenta, uh, the, th the interface between a mother and her child. Uh, one very important part of the placenta, the part that helps it fuse to the uterus wall, actually comes from a virus. Viruses are very good at fusing with cell walls, and we kind of stole this gene from viruses, mammals did, and we still use it today, and it's one of the hallmarks of mammals now is the fact that most mammals use the placenta. So in this case, Margulis was definitely proven right. Uh, genes can flow uh, sort of sideways between species. It remains to be seen whether they can bring about the kind of large-scale changes that Margulis uh, thought they would. Um, she was talking about, you know, brand new species arriving in possibly a single generation or something like that. Uh -huh. She was really into the idea of big jumps, and that's, that's still a more controversial uh, idea, and it's a little bit on the fringe, but it's an exciting one, and it's something that could actually help explain uh, kind of the incredible diversity of life that we see today and in the fossil record. Well, speaking of both Big Jumps and The Fringe, you have one chapter in your book talking about one of the more hair-raising experiments I've ever heard about, uh, a Russian effort sometime back to perhaps try and mate humans with chimps. Can you talk about this wacky episode? Uh, sure. This was a biologist named Ivanov in uh, Russia and then the Soviet Union. Um, Ivanov was an expert in artificial insemination, and he worked with horses before. That was kind of his specialty. But when the Soviet Union uh, came around, he decided he was going to indulge in an old interest of his, which was whether humans and chimpanzees or orangutans uh, could interbreed, whether there could be a human chimp child, basically. And he got funding from the Soviet Union to do this. In fact, 
Joseph Stalin was the one who approved the funding for these experiments to go forward. And Ivanov eventually ended up in Africa trying to inseminate chimpanzees with human sperm to try to grow these hybrid human chimps. And that didn't work out for him. But when he came to the United, excuse me, when he came back to the Soviet Union, he decided to actually reverse the process and try to impregnate a human being with uh, orangutan sperm. And this is something that just sounds absolutely horrific today. We can't imagine <laughs> yes. these kind of experiments going on. But they did go on uh, in the Soviet Union at one point. And Ivanov's tale is really fascinating. Uh, he ended up, you know, the Ku Klux Klan was involved, like writing him letters, um, threatening him. He ended up um, on this estate in Havana for a while, trying to convince this woman that she should let him do the experiments there. And he was all over the world. It was just a really fascinating chapter of history. And it actually brings up some good scientific questions about, well, why couldn't this work if it couldn't work? And how closely related are human beings and chimps anyway? So it was not only kind of a fun and uh, hair-raising tale, but there's a lot of good science involved in it as well. Well, Sam, we do have to ask at some point, uh, who is the violinist in the title, and, and, and what is it about his thumb that's interesting? The violinist in the title is Niccolo Paganini. And he's usually considered the greatest violinist who ever lived. He was touring through Europe in the early 1800s, uh, playing for kings, for emperors, for popes. Uh, they struck coins with his likeness on them, and he had to fight off rumors uh, that he'd sold his soul to Satan for his talent. That is how good he actually was. Um, and one of the reasons he was good was he had these amazingly, freakishly flexible fingers. He could twist them into all sorts of knots and uh, stretch them incredibly wide. He could just do things with his hands that other violinists simply could not. And it's almost certain that Paganini had a genetic disorder. It was a uh, disorder of the joints, among other places, and it's what made his fingers so amazingly flexible and gave him part of his talent. And I like the story for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, it shows how genes can interact with environmental factors to make people who they are. Uh, Paganini, in addition to his hands, was also very passionate about music, and he worked very, very hard. So it wasn't just his genes that made him, but his genes were definitely a part of that. And it goes to show how those things all combine to make someone special. It was kind of a perfect storm of someone with the genetic endowment getting these personality traits as well. Um, and the other reason I like the story is that even though uh, his genes helped make him who he was, helped make him such a great violinist, his genes also led to health problems in later years and ended up slowing him down. And by the end of his life, he actually couldn't perform in public anymore. He was that worn down and sickly. So in one sense, his genes helped make him, but in another sense, they helped unmake him. So he was kind of in a pact 
with his DNA and benefited from them in one way, but didn't benefit uh, from them in another way. So it gets at a lot of different themes in the book, which is why I chose it for the title. Well, yes, this, this, this theme about genes not being the person, this services again when we talk about genetic testing or even, even about human cloning. People are fearful of like, well, what if we got Hitler's DNA and made another Hitler? Well, he may have Hitler's genes, but that wouldn't make him another Hitler. It depends so much on the experiences that goes into making it who we are. Yeah, that's one of the things that I really wanted to emphasize in the book. Um, we, we are hearing even more nowadays that more and more personality traits have some sort of genetic influence to them. There's somehow that genes, some way that genes are influencing them. But we're also finding that it's only an influence. Genes can only do so much. And they really deal in probabilities. They don't deal in certainties. So as you said, exactly, it's your experiences combined with your genes that make you who you are. And uh, as far as cloning goes, you're exactly right. If we cloned someone, we wouldn't get the exact same person. We would get a person who was raised in a different time, who had different memories, different experiences. They might look like the person, uh, maybe even kind of spookily like the person, but they would probably be even less alike than identical twins are because they grew up in different times. And we've all known, in fact, identical twins who have uh, different personalities or who even look a little bit different. So again, genes aren't your destiny. And I'm not sure once we understand that about cloning that there would actually be a lot of demand for cloning. Uh, cloning is very hard with humans for some technical reasons, but even if we got beyond those hurdles, if you can't resurrect somebody and you can't recreate their personality, in some ways there's not much point to cloning a person because you're just going to make a different person. You might as well do it the old-fashioned way if you're going to make another person. It's more fun that way. <laughs> Um, there's one name we, we have to bring up before we wrap up today, Sam. That would be a name I think people will recall from their high school biology uh, Jean-Baptiste Lamarck, he had an idea on evolution. They were trying to figure out how it worked, and he suggested, well, maybe animals acquire characteristics, and then they, they, they pass those along. This sort of got wiped out by Darwin, but as we proceed in the 21st century, well, it looks as though Lamarck may not have been 100% wrong, thanks to a new science of epigenetics that shows that, well, some characteristics apparently are passed from generation to generation. Can you talk a bit about that? Lamarck's basic idea was that what you do during your lifetime can get passed on to your children. Uh, so, for instance, his famous example was giraffes. Giraffes want to reach to the top of trees, so they stretch their necks really hard. Their necks grow by, you know, a millimeter each day or something. And then the next generation of giraffes uh, gets the longer neck because the parent giraffes were stretching their necks. And he thought it worked with humans, too, blacksmiths for instance, would get big muscles and then pass the muscles on to their children because of the work they did during their life. And, of course, with the advent of Darwin and Mendel, this idea got discredited because we more look today at inborn traits. We look at genes, and those are what pass traits on to new generations. But as you said, things are kind of coming back around for Lamarck. We're finding that in certain circumstances, Things you experienced or uh, things you ate, you know, famines or post-traumatic stress disorder, things like that, can actually 
alter your genes in the sense that they can turn genes on and off. They don't change your DNA, but they change how your DNA works. And again, in some circumstances, that can even get passed from a parent to a child, these different patterns of on and off genes. So this is reminiscent of Lamarck, and maybe, uh, you know, in the future, Lamarck will be probably not as celebrated as Darwin or Mendel, but he could be rehabilitated a little bit. He'll no longer be um, sort of a villain of science (laughs) history, what is what he had been in the past. Well, Sam, I wish we had a whole other hour to talk about this stuff. This is this is this is this is wonderful, and uh, want to point out to your listeners the book once again is "The Violinist Thumb and Other Lost Tales of Love, War, and Genius," as written by our genetic code. Well, Sam Key, thank you so much for speaking with us. It's been a lot of fun. All right, thanks. I appreciate you having me back. All right, Sam. Thanks. <laughs> 